You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice and tips on making in the UK. So let's get on with today's show. Hello and welcome to episode number 181 of the Make It British podcast. I've had some fantastic guests on this show over the last three years since I first launched the Make It British podcast. And some of our guests in particular have really stood out. And I'm aware that quite a few listeners are new to the show and may not have heard some of the original interviews that I've done with some key people in UK textile manufacturing. So today I'm bringing back one of the interviews that I did in the summer of 2020, which is with Simon Cotton, Chief Executive of Johnson's of Elgin, who are not only one of the oldest textile firms in the UK, they were founded in 1797, but they're also one of the largest, certainly if you count the amount of people that they employ across their sites in Scotland. They were the first company to bring cashmere weaving to Scotland. And the reason that Scotland is known for its cashmere is because apparently the water is so special and soft that it gives an extra special softness to the handle of the products that are made there. So Simon and I talk about the history of cashmere weaving in Scotland. We also talk about how he is making the business more sustainable for the future. So I hope you enjoy this chat I have with Simon Cotton, Chief Executive of Johnson's of Elgin. Here you go. Hello, Simon. Thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, Kate. Nice to see you again. So in doing my research for this, I had a, thought I'd have a quick look over your LinkedIn profile and you describe yourself as being proud to head up the most exciting company in the UK textile industry. I love it. Please explain. You know, it's, it's kind of like a dream ticket coming to work at Johnson's. They do such amazing things with fabrics and structures, innovations, such a, a core part of what they do. Um, and if you're in textiles and, and you, you enjoy textiles and you enjoy fabrics and you enjoy structures, for me, there's no better place to be. Just that, that whole playfulness and creativity that we get on our own brand, but also working with these amazing private label customers who, who want the next new thing, who want the next new idea. It's, it's fantastic. So you're a marketeer by trade, aren't you? Your background is actually not in textiles. Your previous job, I noticed, was working for a kitchen manufacturer. Yeah, I mean, I, I spent five years manufacturing kitchen sinks and selling them around the world. Before that, I was 11 years in textiles. So I have mm. spent most of my careers in textiles. But of course, it's one of those industries where you're, if you've not been born into it for three generations, then you're, you're a new boy. So I'm still a new boy in the textile industry. So what's been the biggest learning curve for you then coming over to Johnson? So you've been there, how many, how many years have you been there now? It's about six and a half years now. And every day I'm learning something new. So it, it is obviously what we're doing in terms of the level of what we're doing is is, is incredible working with, with the best luxury brands in the world. I came from a textile, a part of the textile business where we were mass producing t-shirts and sweatshirts and things like that. And we we wanted to do products that sold more than 50,000 units. Um, and of course, that's not possible at this level. And you're working with tiny volumes of very, very special things. 
but cumulatively quite big numbers. But generally speaking, it's, it's like, say, a, a very bespoke operation, but on quite a good scale. So it's, it's quite bizarrely complex. Mm-hmm. You know, it is a very, very complex business. There's all sorts of aspects to it. We have our own shops. We have our own e-commerce store. We even have two coffee shops yeah. to, to run, you know, all this stuff. And it does make every day very, very interesting. But it does mean as well that the, the only way to run it is you have a really, really strong management team and you give them a lot of control and a lot of responsibility uh, and I'm very lucky in the team that I've got, you know, takes full advantage of that and really runs their own area uh, superbly well. Because you're spread out over two main sites, Hoik and Elgin. Yeah, so Elgin's the original site and the largest site and where we have all the weaving operations. And, and Hoik was established really to take advantage of the amazing skills that are in that town for making knitwear and where it's had a huge uh, history but it's quite well established now so it's no longer uh, a new mill even though sometimes we talk about it in that way Um, we also have a couple of satellite manufacturing locations down in the borders where we are doing extra embroidery and some of the sewing elements because it is all about skills Mm. you know sometimes where you locate is just about getting the right skilled people at this level so you've got to have experts and we didn't have experts on knitting in in Elgin and when we established the the locations at Inalithan and Walkerburn that was because we knew there was good skills in those areas. Mm, Yeah because the Scottish Borders has always been known for its knitting hasn't it and it's absolutely it's amazing history Mm. yeah yeah and I noticed that you're now doing you've got intarsia within your collection as well haven't you which is a very specialist thing we do just a few specialist pieces as sort of uh, halo pieces for the collection yeah scotland is world renowned for its cashmere how did that come about because johnston's is how many years old now well over 200 so we started in 1797 um And in 1851, we bought in the first bale of cashmere, which was used for weaving in the UK. So that really started off the UK's cashmere industry. By around about 1855, we believe we were de-herring that mechanically. So one of the big things with cashmere is, as it comes off the goat, you need to strip away the guard hair. In, in a mechanical process, you know. So once once the goat's been combed, you take the guard hair and the fine under hair, which is what you want. They're all mixed together. You've got about fifty percent of one, fifty percent of the other, and you want to dehair that. You want to take the guard hair away, and that's the first process that really starts industrialization. So we think that was established at Johnson's about eighteen fifty five, which was quite a number of decades before the next process was replicated and, and used elsewhere. So that was really the kickstart of it. And it moved Johnson's on to a different journey. I mean, we started up as the, a local woolen mill, making blankets for local hospital, using the local sheep's wool. But really, when we started experimenting with things like cashmere and before that with vicuna and alpaca, um, that really moved us into a different direction as a specialist in fine fibres. Uh, And that's been the secret, really, because at that level of the market, UK manufacturing works really well because it's a more expensive product. It requires a lot of care and a lot of love to get the real beauty of the product um, out of the fiber. It's very delicate. It's very easy to break. So, And 
you can cover the higher labor costs you pay in the UK are absorbed within a much more expensive product. So mm-hmm. um, it doesn't become uncompetitive. So it works very well for that type of fiber. And it's been a big part of the secret of the company's success. That move, I think if we'd have mm-hmm. stayed with just wool, it would have been a different story. So was Johnson's the first company to bring cashmere knitting and cashmere weaving to Scotland? Cashmere weaving, yes. So, so yeah, I mean, that's it's an amazing history to have. And we've actually got the, the records of, for example, the first cashmere bale coming in. And we've got this amazing archive up in Elgin, um, which we get to see, where you can see these handwritten records of cashmere bales coming in, uh, coming in from China through a London wool merchant um, and then being used in the, in the mill for weaving. So it's incredible because it's it's alive. You know, we're in the same location. We've never moved and we've got all these amazing records. And your cashmere comes from Mongolia now. Is that is that right? No, it comes it comes from a combination of countries. So for for weaving, it's very helpful to use different colors and different qualities coming from different areas. So we use cashmere from Mongolia, from China, in a Mongolia region, uh, and a little bit from Afghanistan as well. And what we're trying to do with with the weaving uh, fiber is we're trying to do as little as possible to that fiber. It's really, really delicate. So you don't want to be bleaching it. You don't want to be dyeing it too much. You don't want to be heating it too much. You want to be very gentle when you're going through a carding process. So we're carefully selecting what is the right fiber for that product and mixing a number of fibers within it. We use over 20 types of different cashmere fiber. Um, and it's that combination and the skills to put those combinations together in the right way that's really important. Ah, So that's like your secret sauce of it, like... The Kentucky it's, Fried Chicken Colonel Sanders secret recipe. It's, oh, it's, I would probably say it's it's one of the secret ingredients anyway. Yeah. So, because not all cashmere is created equal, is it? I'm sure, you know, people have bought cashmere jumpers before that have pilled really easily. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I've got Johnston's jumpers. They just don't pill at all. For anyone not knowing what pilling it is, it's when you get little bobbles on your knitwear, isn't it? So that's obviously another secret you've got. Is that because of the combination of all the yarns that you mix together? I mean, it's it starts with the fibre. I mean, if you use very good fibre, you can you you can get a very good result. And you know, generally speaking, we are using the best fibre that you can buy. I mean, there are there are loads of people doing de herring in Mongolia and China. There are relatively few that we can use. I think in Mongolia now, out of 28 de-herring plants, we are using two, sometimes three of those who can hit our quality standards and the rest can't. But right throughout the process, I mean, you start with this incredibly fine, long fiber. And during the process, you can probably only make it worse, you know? So you can damage it through the cutting process. You can damage it through the dyeing process. You can bleach it. You can do all these things to it. You can break it in the weaving process. So you're trying to preserve it and look after that fiber as much as possible. And that's why cashmere is so different from other fibers like cotton, which is so robust and you can do so much with. You know, you really have to nurture it. So that's when, when you come to the mill, you'll find some real heritage pieces of equipment because the heritage pieces are much much gentler than a modern production orientated piece of equipment and they can nurse that product through and look after it because you want that really great fiber that you started with to be represented there in the in the finished product so it's a combination of good fiber the right equipment and the right know-how 
you know, and sometimes it's the latest, most modern equipment, and sometimes it's equipment from the 1960s. It just has to be what is right to look after that fiber. Yeah, I was going to ask that because, as you were saying, you use some of the you know original old equipment. How do you balance that with using technology? Because I know you're really keen on technology as well, aren't you? So, how do you find that balance between the heritage and using what technology has to offer in terms of speeding up processes and making things more? efficient and less wasteful yeah i mean i love i love technology and innovation and we all love our, our new toys in manufacturing <laughs> um it, it's got to be what's right you know if the new equipment will do a better job we'll invest in the new equipment if the if the traditional equipment is doing the best job that can possibly be done then you might put new controls on it you might put new measurements on it um but but let's preserve that equipment it's not about it's not about throughput. It's not about fast production. It's about really making the best product we possibly can. Mm. So how many people do you have working at Johnson's across all your different sites? We're just under a thousand. That's a lot, isn't it? So that does make you the biggest textile um, business in the whole of the UK. In but terms by of employees, employees, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So how are you bringing the new generation into the business? Yeah, it's a big it's a big focus for us. I mean, if you look at where we are, we're in rural Scotland. In Elgin, we're, we've got very few mills nearby. In Hoyt, there's more mills, but still you, you want to generate that next generation of skills. So we spend a lot of the time on, on learning and development. Everybody in the organization has a learning development plan, which is refreshed each year. Um, we do a huge number of modern apprenticeships. We've done over 100 so far, and we're looking to develop that even further. We have really everybody is engaged in some way with either learning or training. And we want that very much to be the culture. You know, it's continuous development. And if continuous development for the company can only happen if our people commit to continuous development, including me. You know, it has to be every every single one of us taking that opportunity every day to, to, to get better, to get better in what you're doing, to get better in terms of flexibility, because the stuff that we're working on now, you know, very often we're asking people to multi-skill so that we can transfer if demand changes, because we're tied up with fashion, obviously, um, and getting better because we want to do even more going forward. So we're not just wanting to replace the, the person who's retiring after 30 years in the company. We're wanting to make the next person who comes in even better and able to do even more. It's a continual challenge to just keep the skills level moving forward, mm. not just replacing, but moving forward all the time. Um, but everybody's up for it. And I think once, once people get their heads around that's what life is, everybody quite enjoys it because it's nice to come into work and learn something new and not just be doing the same thing for, forever in your career, just to keep moving on and to, to challenge yourself and to, to have a, a new opportunity. It's, it's, it's great. I mean, mm. you know, that's what we want, I think, from our, from our jobs. And locally as well, you must be seen as a great employer to work for. I mean, I, I'd, I'd like to think so. Certainly that's, that's what the, the, the team is, is very loyal. I mean, we have over 100 people out of that workforce have more than 20 years um, with the company. So they stay they stay with us. They give a, an awful lot of time and dedication to us. So hopefully that says says something. But they, they, don't, they don't come into work for 20 years because of me, because I've not even been there for 20 years. They come in <laughs> because there's a, 
that one, they love the product. I mean, I think most of our people are really in love with what we do as a, as a company, which is fantastic. But secondly, it's a community. You know, it's, we're, we're in a rural area. People come to work. They, they build up friendships. Uh, they support each other. They go the extra mile for each other. I mean, I never, I never have to push people to go the extra mile. You know, if we, if we ask for something to happen, everybody puts their hand up. It's the best workforce I've ever worked for. They're, they're fantastic. So I think we're a good employer, but we're a good employer because we've got great employees. Mm. I mean, that's great to hear about community. And never has that been more important than now as we're, you know, with time of recording this, we're just coming out of the other side of the, the big lockdown. How, how has the, the COVID situation affected Johnson's and how do you think you'll kind of pull out of the other side? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a bizarre time and we closed down completely. Um, mm. We had the instruction from the First Minister in Scotland to close down on, on a Monday lunchtime and uh, we had closed down the operations completely, sealed off the machinery, etc. within 24 hours um, and that was a great achievement by the team. Um, we're now operating again and we've got people back in the mills and we're producing but with huge attention to to, to safety obviously it's got to be a, a massive priority for us and we know we know that coming through this you know we've got some we've got some challenges as everybody has it's been it's been a tough year it's not the year we expected to have at the start of the year but i think as well we've learned a lot about what we're what we're good at and what we're capable of. I've seen so many people step forward in the organization and go that extra mile and take ownership and come up with creative solutions for how they can work safely and how they can do things in a better way. Um, so I'm really more than ever impressed by the organization and how it's pulled through in this, this situation. We did have a couple of nice things during it as well. We, uh, we did scrubs for the local doctor's surgeries and, and healthcare centers and mental health units, etc. Um, so the, the team came in, they worked out how to do, do that. They, they did it themselves. We got some fabric from another UK mill. Um, and that was a, you know, a great example of creativity and problem solving. And you know yourself, Kate, how, mm. how difficult what seems like a simple garment, how difficult that process <laughs> can be to get. Um, and we did that up in Elgin and then down in Hoik, we didn't have the the sewers to do that so we we got some fabric and we donated it to a local sewing team as well um so that was really nice and uh more recently we did a we did this beautiful wide um cashmere scarf in uh, a rainbow pattern for the response for the nhs i've got uh, a confession to make so when i was looking on your linkedin profile today of course i spotted the rainbow scarf so i've now 200 pounds the lighter because just it was a beautiful product and what, what an amazing idea because you know you're giving giving half of the pro the, no you're giving it for half of the sale price to the nhs aren't you yeah, I mean, we've we've priced it so that we 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 didn't want to make any money out of it. It's it's about supporting the NHS and and what's what's going on at the moment. Um, but it was lovely to see everybody engaging with that, you know. And our social media team was getting people to tell stories about what they'd mm. made during lockdown and just engaging with that whole um, different vibe that's around at the moment. This more caring vibe and this more um, creative vibe as well mm. you know I, I can't even remember who came up with the idea of the product and they'll, they'll kill me if they hear this that they, they came <laughs> up with the idea but it certainly wasn't me but it was a lovely idea and, and the design team and the, the die house and, and everybody 
um, work to put that together. And it's, it's a lovely product. I'm, I'm glad you've got one because it is really nice. Well, I thought that's an investment piece. I mean, like all Johnston's um, pieces are investment pieces. That's how I see it. If you spend, you know, two, three hundred pounds on a on a piece of cashmere or a cashmere jumper, you buy that as an investment piece and it lasts. And this is what I try to explain to people. And I, your product really defines the kind of cost per wear of something because it lasts a very long time because of what you've just said about what goes into blending the fibres and, and, and all the knowledge you've got from 300 years. Do you, is, you know... That just seems to be what sort of epitomises Johnson's is is that quality and the fact that it there is longevity in, in it. But at the same time, you also do London Fashion Week. So yeah. how do you balance the the design versus making sure that what you're doing is a, an investment piece? I mean, I think if we design something and somebody buys it and they, they love it for a season and then they, they never wear it again, I think we've failed. You mm. know, this, this is what we're trying to, create is is those pieces in your wardrobe that you take out year after year and you love you know you don't just wear them you, you love them you have a, a, a relationship with them um, and we all know we've all got those pieces that could come from any brand um, not necessarily expensive not necessarily exp- cashmere but that's what we're trying to create um, product that people actually care about and want to wear for a long period of time um, at the same time you don't want to be old fashioned. You don't, you want to be contemporary. You want to be current. Um, so it is important that we show that something which is valid for today. But when we go to London Fashion Week, we're not showing gimmicks or on novelties. What we're trying to show is the craftsmanship and the beauty. When we do London Fashion Week, people can walk up and touch the garments. They can see the garments hanging on a rail. They can feel them. They can see them. They can, you know, it's a tactile product. You want to, whenever somebody says cashmere, you want to touch it. And if you touch it, you know, you'll feel that, that beauty coming through it, something quite unique and, and, and distinctive. So I guess, you know, people are, are, are going a little bit funny about fashion weeks now and saying, well, you know, is this part of fast fashion? Well, we, we couldn't be any further from fast fashion. We, we talk about slow luxury um, because it does take time to make. You want to wear it for a long period of time. Um, but London Fashion Week does give us that showcase that we can actually engage with people from all around the world who can see this product, who can, ha- who can understand what we do, um, which is great. You know, we are a well-kept secret, I guess, in, in the fashion industry. Um, but we don't want to keep that secret too well. Hmm. And how much of your business is wholesale and export? I would imagine export is quite a big amount, isn't it? Yeah, export is quite a, quite a huge amount. I mean, most of our product that we make, um, it goes into other people's brands. So we're a big private label supplier to top luxury brands from around the world. Um, and a lot of those are based in the UK, but if they're based in the UK, they'll sell most of their products outside of the UK. Mm. And we sell yeah. to a lot of the top French brands as well, and we've got some brilliant relationships with them. Um, and in terms of our own brand, um, London and, and the, the British market is a big market for us, but the biggest market is, is Japan, um, where we've had a, had a wonderful business for many years. Um, and we got good business in America, good business in the in the rest of Europe. So it is kind of a global operation. We've got offices in New York and Tokyo and Paris and Dusseldorf. 
Um, so, yeah, it has to be global. I think at this level, for to do the volumes we do, it, it has to be a global um, mm. operation. Mm. And how then do you think Brexit will affect the business? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Brexit on its own isn't the the issue. The issue is tariffs and access to the European market. I mean, it's very yeah. important for us to have access to that. We've got some fantastic partners. Um, our our biggest, many of our biggest customers are located within Europe, and obviously, when we compete to supply them, we're typically competing with Italian mills. Um, so, it is it's really important that we get good access to those markets. Mm. What about countries like Japan? Is that a big market for you as well? It is. It's our biggest branded market. Mm. Yeah, but you've got haven't got stores there like John's Medley have, have you? We don't have our own stores there. No, we've not gone gone down that route there, and I, and I don't think I would. I don't think I would feel confident to run a store in in, in Japan, and and it is difficult. Retail's getting difficult for everyone at the moment, obviously. Um, so we have stores within the UK. Um, which are beautiful stores and good places for people even from around the world to engage with the brand. Um, a lot of Japanese people come into our store in New Bond Street. Um, a lot of Chinese people come in as well. And it's a good place to discover more of the brand than they might see in their home market. Mm. So they discover a broader range of products that maybe they didn't know that we made. Mm. But as we've, as the situation at the moment where people aren't traveling, how how... How much is Johnson's becoming more digital and more online than it was before? You always had a good online presence, but have you have you been sort of building that up as the plans to increase that going forward? We have. We're, we're, we're very fortunate. We have a, a brilliant e-commerce team and we have a very skilled uh, marketing team. We have some really good digital skills, which is not always easy when you're in such a rural location. That's what I was thinking, yeah. Um, but, but we've... we've built up this fantastic team and they've been really growing the business online and growing our digital presence through social etc and uh, influencers and and we've got real momentum there what I'm realizing is that we need to back that momentum and that team even more now Mm. going forward obviously we've been in this very strange world where um, physical retail turned off completely for, for a long period of time and it does make you think about how you deal with that digital space um, and what we're really focusing on now is how we can optimize that and make decisions right across what we do in in product what we do in pricing what we do in um, our marketing team that really optimizes that digital visibility and how mm. people understand our brand um, in the digital space you know, as we grow and as we develop new businesses overseas, it's wonderful when people can come to the mill and it's wonderful when people can come to one of our stores and they can get a feel for us and they can they can make that emotional connection. They need to be able to make that emotional connection online or or yeah. through their social media as well. And that's that's a much more difficult proposition. You know, it's easy to put up a shop and we have a wonderful shop and it's it's great. Um, but the next stage really is to say, well. How do we really emotionally connect and tell our story in all those digital spaces? So that's that's the next challenge for us. Mm. I mean, Burberry did that very well, didn't they, with the making of a Burberry scarf? I presume that was woven at your mill. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated 120 years of supplying Burberry. 
We had loads of the Burberry people came online. Um, we talked about the past and the history from when we first uh, supplied tweeds to Thomas Burberry back in 1900. Um, and they work with every single department in our organization. They are challenging, they're demanding, they push <laughs> us to go even further. Um, but we love that. You know, it makes yeah. us better as an organization. Yeah, because when I was at Burberry in the mid-90s in the accessories department, all of the cashmere and that was bought from Burberry. And, you know, what's great is that they're still working with Johnston's, whereas there's so many other partnerships between British brands and British mills and factories that have broken up because they've moved over to China. But they've they've stuck with you on the cashmere, which is really good to see. What I love about the way that they work is they genuinely see it as a partnership. So they yeah. they are not um they're, they're good partners to have. They challenge us. Um it's it's frustrating at times if we can't get it quite right for them, but they they push us in the right way. Mm. So in what ways have you made the business more sustainable? Because it is certainly the word that everyone is talking about now. How, how do you make a business that's sustainable? It's a big topic, isn't it? Because when mm. you talk about sustainability, I think people tend to start with one aspect of, of what they do and they say, well, how's, we're going to make that sustainable and then we're going to talk about that. We do everything from dyeing, you know, through the weaving or knitting and through the finishing um, and we control every process. We can, for example, sign up to zero discharge of hazardous chemicals, which we've done. We've been working to those standards for several years, but now yeah. we've signed up um, as, as partner, partners to that. And that's very difficult to do if you're only controlling one part of the process because you don't know what somebody else is putting into it in the other areas. I, I personally, I've been very closely involved with the Sustainable Fiber Alliance, which works on cashmere production in Mongolia and now looking at how we take that into China as well. And that's been a long uh, labor of love really for, for us in terms of how do we ensure animal welfare in the supply chain? How do we ensure the grassland management in the supply chain? Um, and lots of exciting projects that we've done along the way in that. So for example, um, we got the SFA to run for us a program where um, we go into schools and we have teachers teaching sustainable grassland management to Mongolian school children who will go on to be herders. Um, and that was the first Fantastic. time sustainability had been taught in, in Mongolian schools, which is, is lovely and it's, it's fantastic. And we would have, we were going on to our second year this year. We've had to deliver that in an online form, obviously, because um, of the current situation and because travel's been restricted in Mongolia. Um, but we see that going from strength to strength, and it is a long-term problem. You know, these are these are challenges that they don't have quick fixes. You know, it's not like you just go out and you say, "I'm just going to make a sustainable project program overnight." It's it's yeah. done. If you're going to do this seriously, then you know, when we did the zero discharge of hazardous chemicals, we had to work with the dye, dye manufacturers. We had to work through all the processes and replace things and change things and look at formulations. And when we're looking at sustainability, we have to go into how the community manages that land, what are the traditional practices and how can we build on those and get real long-term support. There are no quick fixes here. I think that's yeah. the big line that's being told is, you know, you can just suddenly make it sustainable. Mm. Actually, you've got to work every single day in a lot of different ways. Um, and the, the advantage that we have in this is we control virtually everything that goes into 
into our product. We do 90% of the processing, 90% of the manufacturing processes on site in our own mills. And so we can do it exactly the way we want it to be done. Yeah, excellent. So what are your plans for the future for Johnston's Velgin? I'm sure you've um, got big plans. Yeah, I mean, you know, Johnston's Velgin it's not something that I want to transform into something that it's not, you know? So mm. it is, I, you know, what we have uh, as a company is, is very special. I'm very privileged to, to look after it. The challenge I was given by the family who owns it, when, when I joined the company, they said to me, you know, your, your task is really simple. You just need to make it last for another 200 years. <laughs> and that's, that's how we're running things. You know, we're running it with the view of that long-term thing. So sustainability yeah. becomes very important. Training, investment in technology, doing things the right way become much more important when you look at it through that perspective than if you're looking at the next month's results. Now, yeah. obviously, you don't want to make profit and you want to be uh, liquid and all the rest of the stuff. But if you're looking at that long-term picture, I think you do things in the right way within our industry. You know, you make the product the right way. You look after the reputation. You make quality product even when you could make it a little bit cheaper. Nobody would notice for a little while, but it's not the right thing to do in the long term. It's my privilege to look after it for the next however many years. Um, but what I'd like is to pass it on an even stronger position so that the next person can make it even stronger again. Um, and it's building continually building those next blocks for the future brilliant simon that is really fantastic it's been fascinating talking to you today i love the fact that you are you consider yourself looking after johnson's of elgin so that to make it good for the next 200 years i think that's brilliant thank you thank you very much for joining me and um where can where's the best place for people to find johnson's of elgin now that we're reopened all our stores, we've got stores in uh, London in New Bond Street, in Edinburgh in Moultrie's Walk online, or in you know many of the world's top department stores. Most of them stock us in some area, um, so you don't have to look too hard. And how many more of those rainbow scarves have you got left? Because I know they're limited edition. We have, I think we have, we did have 15 when I checked earlier today. I think there's about 14 left and a few more that are just in the store windows. Um, it's selling out very, very quickly now. Collector's item. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you very much, Simon. Thanks, Kate. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, bye. bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday and Friday, plus there are bonus episodes occasionally. So make sure you subscribe in your favourite podcast app. And if you're looking to find British made brands or UK manufacturers, check out the directory on the Make It British website, which you can find at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash directory. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.